I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And what happens when you're suddenly thrust into the international spotlight at the intersection of two of the most pressing issues of our day, the criminal justice system and the COVID-19 vaccines? Our guest this week found himself in the middle of a firestorm after he spent one fateful evening just trying to do the right thing. Dr. Hassan Gokul is an emergency medical physician who has been practicing medicine for the last 20 years. He began his practice in upstate New York and has been seeing emergency room patients in the Houston area since 2009, where he's worked at Memorial Hermann Cady Hospital and Houston Methodist Hospital. In 2020, he began working for the Harris County Public Health Office of Preparedness and was the medical director for COVID vaccine distribution in Harris County until January 2021, which will lead us to our main topic of discussion. Hassan, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. So we'll start with the most recently dramatic portion first and work our way back from there. On June 30th, a grand jury declined to indict you on charges of stealing doses of the COVID Moderna vaccine, bringing to a close, at least in the immediate term, an ordeal that lasted more than five months, cost you your livelihood for the time being, put your professional reputation in jeopardy, and put your face in the pages of the New York Times this past February, which is how I first encountered your story. But before we get to that, I'd love to learn more about your life before this moment, You've been practicing emergency medicine since you finished your residency in New York State in 2001. How did you first become interested in the medical field? What got you interested in medicine? Gosh, I can't remember wanting to do anything else. It was the thing I always dreamed of as a child and never looked back, to be honest with you. I was very fortunate that I had the opportunities to pursue it and to study it in New York City, where I went for a combined undergraduate and med school program at the part of the City College of New York in seven years. I had an opportunity to get into that and really have enjoyed what I've done since then. So no great answer beyond that. Well, was there something that inspired you as a child? You mentioned before the recording that you were born in Pakistan. Were there any family members who were in the medical field or did you remember first getting an idea about becoming a doctor? Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because I don't think anyone's really asked me that before. And there is an answer to that when that is. When I was when I was a kid, there was it was in the middle of the Iran Iraq war. I would make it the early eighties. At that period of time they used to have people who would come and collect blood and have blood drives. Now it's not as organized or as sterile as it is how we see it here, but over there during a wartime period, this was like an emergency need. People used to line up and stuff. And I would happen to have be in front of my grandmother's house growing up and I would volunteer there. And it was watching those volunteers collecting blood, taking care of the people that really inspired me the most. And thinking back, if I was to say, was there a single episode of, or time that really made me want to do this, that would be it. That's really wonderful. And one of the reasons that I like to talk with guests kind of about their backstory leading up to whatever it is that we end up talking about in a given conversation is because, and I think this is especially true in your case, Hassan, is that especially these days in the age of social media, but this has been true since newspapers existed. When someone is involved in a story, especially one that is at least on its face as dramatic as yours, and I imagine it was very dramatic to live through, and we'll get to that in a moment, I think what can get lost for a lot of people who just scan the headlines or even read the entire article is the human who is behind the story. You know, like to the person who just encounters your article like I did in the New York Times in February, I mean, I read the whole thing, but beyond that, I didn't have much information about you. And I think what's so important is that, at least important to me, is that we don't just atomize individuals as just subjects in a story, but rather as fully human beings with interests and families and passions. And I think it's important to kind of ground these stories in the personal. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Oh, but you know, something it's, what's interesting is that as the interviewer, you're not the only one who's feeling that. As the person on this end, I myself realized that through my experience when I started getting, and I learned from those people who started sending me notes, letters, people sent $7 in cash to help pay for the legal bills, wonderful, wonderful stories, people who I didn't know. And I began to realize, you know, I've never really done that for anybody else before. This is a conversation I had with my brother that, you know, think about all these stories we come across, across it, we never really 
think of them as human. They're just a pixelated image with a, with a few text pieces up below it. And that's kind of sad. You're not alone in feeling that way. Yeah. Your story has, just from reading the comments in either a, a YouTube interview you've done or the New York Times article that you're featured in, just reading those comments, it's very clear how many lives that your story has touched and the overwhelming amount of public support you've received. But I, I feel like I'm teasing the audience at this point, so <laughs> we'll press forward. But just to get a little more of your backstory, your wife ultimately, in kind of a roundabout way, ended up playing, an, I guess you could say, an unexpectedly pivotal role in the story we're about to discuss. But I, I would love to learn how the two of you first met. <laughs> She's going to kill me for saying this. Well, actually, it's funny because we're both kids in the same Montessori school in the city of Karachi, Pakistan. I come home one day and I tell my mother, mom, this is, that's the girl that I want to marry. At which point my mother said, you're crazy. Go back to school. <laughs> she never spoke to me again for 22 years or something like that. Till when I went back on vacation and we met each other again. Wow. So the oddest, oddest set of circumstances you could ever imagine. But it's the truth. That's exactly what happened. Of course, she says, I don't remember any part of this, but that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> so, okay. So just so I understand, so you, you met as children and what was it that prevented you from communicating for that 22 year period? It was, oh, I, that's I because I, yeah, that's because I moved to the US and that ah, shortly after. The move, got it. Yeah. Okay. I remember this is before the time of any regular interactions. <laughs> like, uh, you know, we yes. didn't have, you didn't have Facebook. the internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people take it for granted these days. And it's interesting that you mentioned a Montessori school. I, one of the interviews that I gave last year was with two gentlemen who founded a series of Montessori schools out of San Francisco that are now a across the U.S. So that's quite a coincidence. Did you enjoy the time that you, you spent at the school? No, I guess not, because I was just being feeling rejected constantly. So, you know, <laughs> but, but all kidding aside, I couldn't tell you from my experience, but my own daughter's experience was exceptional. Oh, wonderful. They're going to a Montessori school as well. She did. Yeah, she did on the early first few years. Gotcha. And is this Zara we're talking about here? No, that's Mariam. Mariam. Oh, oh, got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. What brought you to Houston from New York in 2009? It was actually, have you ever been there in the winter uh, to time? Houston? Uh, or no, to New in, York? <laughs> in, in, in Syracuse, New York. Yeah. You know, it's like eight months of winter and then three more months of bad skiing, something like that. <laughs> so yeah, primarily it was the weather. Secondly, it was, it was the quality of life. The diversity here as compared to upstate New York, and we're talking about New York way north. There really wasn't much in terms of cultural exposures for the kids. For us, that quality of life is really what drove me here. And uh, I haven't regretted it since. Yeah, that makes total sense. I, I haven't been to Houston, but I've got friends who are in Texas and they say a lot of positive things about it. So yeah. I completely understand that. More specifically, as we head into the main thrust of the story, what drew you, we kind of learned what drew you to medicine initially as a child, but what specifically drew you to the field of emergency medical care out of all the different kinds of medicine you could have practiced? I truly believe that when you're in med school and you pick a residency or a specialty, you don't pick the specialty, that specialty picks you. That happens because your personality is such a match for the required skills. So for me, what I enjoy about emergency medicine is the ability to take somebody's worst day in their life and turn it all around for them. And you really can't do that in many other fields. Yeah, there are bad days. But even the bad days, you've done something to help somebody in some capacity. You know, I always say, as an emergency physician, you can't possibly know everything about everything. Nobody can. But what I do know is how to look out for all the bad, bad players. And once I've ruled those out, I can usually make their lives a little bit better by either if I'm not curing them, at least I'm making them feel better, or at least I'm giving them a direction, giving them a little bit of ease of mind. And that is very, very powerful. You never get tired of doing that. I can totally see the appeal there. I, I don't have any history in medicine myself, but I imagine that the sheer immediacy, the cause and effect of that can be very rewarding because if you're, you know, let's say internal medicine, yes, you can obviously provide a similar service, but oftentimes it, it might be over the course of several visits or several weeks. But I imagine in emergency care, when someone shows up to you, they're in a pretty bad spot. And you being able to immediately kind of turn their day around must be extremely gratifying in a way that other areas of medicine may not be. 
So that brings us to 2020 and the outbreak of the COVID pandemic. In April of last year, you moved from working in the Houston Methodist Hospital that we discussed earlier in the emergency medical room to the Harris County Public Health Office of Preparedness, which I mentioned in the intro. What led you to making that move specifically during that time? We were getting hit with the pandemic. It was starting up, it was gearing up, and I was friends with the executive director of Harris County Public Health, Dr. Shah. He called me out of the blue, actually, and said, hey, you know, you had mentioned in the past you might be interested in this. You still want to come on and do something like that? I'm like, yeah, I mean, let's, I'd love to, love to talk about it and go. And well, that was that. I, he knew what he was getting, but he kind of introduced me to the rest of the team. And I joined on there with a lot of clinical experience. And that's all I'd done worked in the ER, and that's what they were lacking to some degree. They were often making decisions based on non-clinical reasons, and sometimes some of the basic things were left out. The idea was to bridge that gap with clinical knowledge. Having someone with your on-the-ground experience working in those facilities, I imagine, was, was quite a boost to them in terms of being able to understand how to best administer care. Yeah. I mean, whenever you do public health, whenever you're taking care of thousands of when you're responsible for the health of thousands of people, it makes sense to have people who have real-time clinical information and knowledge uh, to help you along, not only in dealing with the people itself, but often understanding the systems that dominate our public health systems, how they interact with various different agencies, how they interact with the different hospitals, and what alternatives and options we have. You wouldn't know otherwise. So it's, it's always a good thing to do. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me anyway, as the layman. (laughs) During your last month at Methodist, I heard in one of your interviews, you said that you stayed in a hotel room so you wouldn't risk infecting your family. At the start of the COVID outbreak, you have an 11-year-old daughter, Mariam, your 16-year-old son, Ali, and your 19-year-old daughter, Zara. And I think specifically, it was out of concern for your wife, Maria, who works as a speech therapist. And importantly, to this part of the story, I believe is immunocompromised due to a, a lung condition known as, and hopefully I'm pronouncing this correctly, pulmonary sarcoidosis. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. Can you elaborate on, on this ailment for those listening who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, it was that also and, and my parents who live close. So that risk was there. And remember, this is early on when we didn't know exactly what kind of effects it would have on who and what degree of contact would be. It was a terrifying time. Yeah, would be considered. So, so, so pulmonary sarcoidosis is an illness that can take many different routes. Some of them are so mild and people get over it before you know it and they happen to find it on an incidental chest x-ray. Oh, look, a little bit of white fibrous changes, scarring in the lungs, that's that. Sometimes it goes on for a couple of years and eventually burns out. And then there's a, and I'm simplifying it a little bit, but there's a third type where it goes on to progressively cause increasing problem breathing eventually till you can no longer survive with the lungs you have because there's so much scarring and there's so much inflammation in the lungs. The problem is you don't get to figure out which one you have up front. So if you have it, you don't know whether you're going to, it's just going to burn itself out quickly with some medication or it's going to lead to a bad outcome at the end. And that's one of the more nerve wracking parts about this illness, having a loved one have this illness. You don't know how bad it's going to get. The treatments aren't all that safe either, to be honest with you. And a lot of them have to do with dampening down your immune system for the purpose of decreasing your body's inflammation and the reaction it has against this particular illness. When you do that, you're actually reducing your immunity to fight any other illness that comes along. You're basically down-modulating your or down-regulating your immune system. So you can just imagine in the face of COVID what that potential could lead to. Right. The very medication that she is and was on was the thing that was helping to compromise her immune system during a pandemic. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Just to touch really quickly on that part that you said about the the, the kind of not knowing, just as a, as a slight tangent, that was one of, I would say, I think we all kind of went through this a bit last year, was one of the most terrifying things about the pandemic in general was the not knowing when things would end, what would be next. 
not knowing the outcome, the duration. So I, I can only imagine, I can't really imagine what it's like to live with an ailment like that in which you don't know how bad it's going to get or, or when it might ever go away. And in some ways, we're going through this again with the new variants coming out, not knowing how bad is it going to get and right. who's safe, who isn't, are the vaccines working or not in this particular variant? Is it going to change the type of people who get it? Is it going to affect kids more? All these questions are coming right back and we're having to deal with the uncertainty and all of that. So a worrying time. Hopefully the vaccines that are being distributed across the US, hopefully they'll protect, protect us against these new, mm -hmm. more contagious variants like the Delta one. To take us back to the timeline of the story that leads up to December 29th of last year, what was your role at the Harris County Public Health Department in the lead up to the first day of public vaccine distribution on December 29th? What was your role from April to December? My role was to work with the Office of Preparedness and Response. These are the guys who jump forward whenever there is a hurricane or, or pandemic or anything like that and then start to figure out how can we best protect the most number of people in Harris County? And that's the group with which I worked or within which I worked. A large part of it had to do with tracking and seeing what areas of the county had higher prevalence of illness or infection rates. We were dealing with a huge number of test data that was coming in and trying to reorient services for testing, et cetera. Among those trying to figure out how bad are the hospitals getting, are they going to be overrun? And that was part of the reason why Harris County had built a temporary structure to serve as a hospital in a parking lot in the beginning. That experience was based on the New York experience. We were fully anticipating things were going to get that bad here. Well, they didn't, thankfully. But to be able to navigate these ups and downs with data is really what I was doing. Yeah. So it sounds almost like a kind of data-driven triage that you were a part of. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Okay. So let's fast forward to December 29th. I imagine a day that you did not imagine would be that fateful for you, but kind of was the first domino in a series of events that kind of has consumed the first half of 2021 for you. So you were the medical director for the vaccine rollout for Harris County that day, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. So this was day number one of the vaccine rollout. We just got a few days before that, we had gotten word that the FDA had approved the Moderna vaccine. And that's what we were going to be getting from the state, the DSHS, or DSHS, the Department of State Health Services, who distributes and gives guidance as to how to roll it out. So we quickly went into action, realizing that we had to try and get the most vulnerable groups immunized first. And that, in this case, included frontline workers, hospital frontline workers, as well as EMS and some other categories. And this was the decision that was made. And this is what we were trying to stay by. But this is hard to do. So we started our first day early in the morning. Let, uh, the day before, we let the EMS folks and those guys know to come through, to register and come through and get your vaccination, etc. And we did this for most of the day. The total response at that time was pretty poor in terms of we had about 500 or so vaccines and a couple of hundred people came through. Was that because of a lack of understanding? This was the very first day it was being distributed. Was it a lack of awareness at the time? Yeah, it was all happening too fast. Yeah, uh, that was yeah. the main thing. We worked up until uh, 7 p.m. So it was 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. I was on the ground that particular day as, as they needed people who may be able to provide guidance and supervise the area at the same time. And at the end of the day, at about 6.30 p.m., it was, this, was in a, this was in a park that's a northern area of Houston. It was very dark. There was a completely unlighted area, which was fine during the daytime. But at this time, at December 29th, uh, everything was dark. And, and yeah. there was a couple of cars that went through at 6.30. We thought that was the last one. We figured we had to wait around another half. So, yeah. and we had just used up the last vaccine and we were just done exactly to the right dose. Now, remember, we were using Moderna's. Moderna's are supposed to come in vials with 10 doses in there, but almost always you have 11 doses in them. And that was the guidance is look, if you get a little extra, just, you know, use it up, make sure you don't waste anything. It's a little bonus. So be it. Right. And so, and that's kind of how it was a nationwide guidance on these things. We were done with the vial, and at a quarter to seven, right around there, one more person comes through. Well, now you have an issue because 
given the way it works, you have to, if you open a vial, you have to utilize all those doses, all the 11 doses in six hours, at which point if they, they expire and you have to just throw them away. So we gave the one dose, 10 doses are left. And I, we had an issue. We're like, all right, what are we going to do with, with the leftovers? Well, first thing, the most obvious thing. Just to cut in real quick, um, Hassan, just to reiterate what something you said earlier, because I think this is important. Out of the 10 doses, which were now set to expire within six hours, you only had 500 doses that day, correct? A total availability for you. Right. Right. So that, so 10 doses is a fairly significant amount out of the 500 doses you had. This isn't like how it is now where there's literally thousands of doses available in any given city on any given day. Right. And remember, this is day one. This is day one. This is the first opportunity to get it out and protect, start protecting people and right. especially the high vulnerable ones. So now when we rolled this out, there was guidance from the Department of State Health Services on a conference call with all the department, with all the various health departments to say, guys, if you're left with any doses at the end of the day, and you can't find the tier that you're supposed to get into the high risk tier, well, you just move on to the next tier. If you can't find anyone there, find anyone who's willing and able to take the vaccine. Whatever you do, don't waste any. This was a conference call on December 22nd that you and many other public health officials were all on. Everyone heard this guidance. Right, exactly. So in the absence of any specific guidance from Harris County Public Health and the guidance from the state, along with my own personal sensibilities as a physician, there was, it just didn't make sense to just let it go back and go to waste. So the first thing is you look around and see who's around you. These guys are all frontline workers. If there was any takers, they would be the first to get it. A few of them had already taken it a little while before that. And there was a few that didn't want to take it just yet. For the same reasons, they were a little afraid. And there was a first rollout. They wanted to wait a little more, which is fine. There was two police officers there. One had taken it, one didn't. One didn't want to. And the EMS guys had taken off who had been with us all day. There was actually even one of the... One of the people who, work, who was working there that day said, you know, my grandma could probably use this. I said, I don't, don't want you to bring her over. But by the time she would go home and come back, it would have probably been about three hours. And she said, no, I'll try and find another time. So now I'm left with 10 doses. And I touched base with the immediate supervisor and let him know. I said, look, I've got a bunch of doses. I'm going to try and find people to give them to. And I was told, okay, good. And so I started making phone calls with people that I thought might have families, members who are who are older or who are sick, who might be interested in receiving these. Remember, this is this is at this point, it's dark out there. There's very little opportunity to go out and find the exact tier. So you know it's not like I'm gonna go find EMS people or stuff like that. I just have to get this out and there was a time limit that was that was quickly running out. Yeah, the, there was a one image that struck me from one of the articles that I read that it was it was basically, as you guys were closing up shops, so to speak, you, you were keeping the area lit with headlights from your cars because it was so dark. So I remember there was a I think it was a conversation that you had on The View earlier this year, you said that aside from your wife, who we'll get to shortly, she, she comes in towards the end of this evening. But the other people who you administered the vaccines to weren't, correct me if I'm wrong here, weren't even necessarily close friends of yours. They were acquaintances or references of acquaintances as you were trying to find people who were either elderly, immunocompromised, worked with those who were either or. How did you come across, how did you find these people who you, who you administered the doses to over the course of the evening? I left voicemail messages on various people's phones that I thought may have someone or the other. They knew that that would do it. A few of them called back and said, look, well, I have this parent or this uh, acquaintance who might benefit from it. I said, great, well, let's go ahead and either get them over to my place or if they live, where do they live? If they live close home and they can't get out, I'll go ahead and get them. And that's kind of how we arranged for the first few people to do that. As a matter of fact, all the 10 doses, I got people to accept to take it. A few of them were able to come over to my place and get it, and a few weren't. And so what I did was in between, I would drive out to the homes of the people, and these were elderly folks who I didn't personally know. One of them was a neighbor of a friend of mine. There were two people that were bedbound. One was in the 80s. And one was in the 90s. And as such, I distributed 
all but one of the of the doses. The last dose was meant for somebody to come over, but he was an older gentleman who called around midnight and said, hey, you know, it's kind of late and I don't feel safe driving out at this time. Thanks, but I'll be okay. I'll look for another time. Right. And, and by midnight, we're closing in pretty quickly on the six-hour mark. Is that right? Right, right. So shortly after that, about another half hour left. So at this point, I was exhausted. I remember having this conversation with my wife that, you know, God, if this wasn't it wasn't such a big deal to save these things. I would just, I would have so gone to bed already, you know. And now uh, at this point to get out there and try and find somebody would have been pretty tough. That's when I had the discussion with my wife. We thought about it. I said, look, I'm going to throw this away in about a half hour. There's no point. It doesn't make any sense. You're probably as eligible or more eligible than the others who have given them to. And I had no intent of giving this to you. But under the circumstances, it makes sense for you to take this. Because are you sure this is going to be okay? And is it appropriate? I said, yeah, well, there's paperwork that needs to get done. We'll make sure we do all the appropriate paperwork submitted. And there's nothing wrong or illegal about what we're doing. This is just trying to find the right person to take the dose at a time when no one else is available. Well, little did I know how that would turn out. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that in just one second, because that is a hell of a story. I mean, from everything that I've read about you, doctor, and your family, I mean, you strike me as a, not to inflate your ego too much here, but you strike me as a highly moral man. So I can only imagine what was going through your mind, even though you knew or you expected that everything was on the up and up, you knew what you had gone through that night. I imagine when you and and your wife were were having that discussion past midnight, the very least, how oh, how would this look, right? It doesn't seem like a conversation that you were taking lightly or a responsibility that you were taking lightly when you did it. Yes, I appreciate you saying that. But in reality, I mean, I think that's, that's any physician would think of those issues, especially when, you know, the rules aren't very clearly laid out. I mean, if you have a protocol that you have to follow along and then you go ahead and do it, that's one thing. But when you have to rely on your moral compass you always have to think twice and and see, make sure, double check that you're doing the right thing by every standard. As a physician, you have to do this enough times in your life that you kind of learn to say, look, at the end of the day, if I'm going to do something, it's going to be on erring on the side of human life. And if I'm going to make a decision and it helps someone's life, all right, fine, I'll do that. We'll figure out the rest. And the reality is that in emergency medicine and in, in most other medical areas, this happens every now and then something or the other happens that requires you to do something in a very unorthodox way, potentially breaking a policy of some sort. And it's all for the purpose of saving a human life. And it's usually much more obvious, like giving a medication that you believe would save a life, even though it's not normally used for that or something along those lines. Well, this is in many ways similar. To be able to look at, to have this discussion, say, you know what, I think this is the right thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think anyone who's ever even seen a medical drama on television would probably be familiar with the rather famous oath that doctors are required to abide by. And when it yeah. comes to someone like your wife, Maria, or the folks, other folks who you'd administered the vaccine to that evening, when you look at it from a top-down macro view, and you're thinking about the conditions that these people were in, right, either because of age or ailments that compromised their immunity and made them more vulnerable to the virus, when we think about the idea of doing no harm, not giving a vaccine when that vaccine is going to expire to people who are very vulnerable to a virus would be doing harm, in my humble view. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's and bear in mind is one other piece to this, that this was slated for a wasting. In other words, it isn't like I took it from one person and gave it to another. <laughs> right. This is I took it from going into the garbage to give it to somebody who made it a useful thing as opposed to letting it expire. And I think a lot of the subsequent legal issues were based on that definition. Right. What's interesting here, and I think this will help highlight the kind of ludicrousness of what happens next, is there was a story out of Israel, actually, uh, one day later, on December 30th, 2020, an anecdote that came out of Israel about how nurses at a, a hospital in that country were administering vaccines, uh, Moderna vaccines, in very similar situations to you. The anecdote, I remember, I, I just wrote it down in brief. There were a few doses left and they were about to expire. Was, and so the nurses ran outside of this hospital and they actually spotted a pizza delivery guy. This is in Israel. They spotted a pizza delivery guy, flagged him down 
and said, translating from the, the Hebrew here, pizza guy, you want a vaccine? And he rushed over and they, they jabbed him and he went about his way. But, you know, this idea of not letting these vaccines go to waste is a pretty universal one that is that was prominent across any country that was administering them. And Israel, as you know, was kind of on the front line of administering these vaccines. And you weren't giving them to a 30 year old pizza guy on the streets of Israel. <laughs> so I, I just think that I, I wanted to I wanted to highlight that story as a contrast to the lengths that you went to to administer these vaccines to vulnerable populations. And, and you know, as time went on, we all began to recognize and very quickly that saving the vaccine and restricting it for one specific tier population at the expense of others is not necessarily making the pandemic resolve any quicker than if you were to just take all comers, for example. Not saying that this particular argument was resolved with any definitive answer, but there's a lot of people who feel that, look, who are the people who are getting sick? Or who were the ones who were transmitting? It was the young people, right? A lot of the older folks and we were taking a lot of precautions. So someone even went as far as to suggest, well, why don't you why don't we wait in front of nightclubs and when they come in, give them all the vaccines <laughs> because this will right. break the changes of transmission. I mean, yeah, there are a ton of ethical questions that come and that's not where I'm going with my story, certainly. But uh, it makes you wonder. There are a lot of different ways to help people and do the right thing. Absolutely. Okay. So before we get to January 21st, when a news crew stuck a microphone in, in your son's face, <laughs> let's go to yeah. the next day. You get to work the next morning, I imagine. What happens next? So the next morning I get to work, I had the forms, submission forms for each one of these vaccines that had been filled out and needed to be entered into the system for both entry into both the Harris County as well as the state systems. That was done first thing in the morning, along with a discussion among the group of people who were there, a part of the team to say, hey guys, last night I was left with 10 of them and this is what I did. This is how I handled it. And here are the pages. I'm going to get make sure everything gets submitted properly. I heard nothing contrary to that, that whether there was any problem with that issue. was like, yeah, okay. It sounded like the most logically right thing to do, at least, at least even to them, apparently. And that was the end of that. That's the last I heard of that story in for another eight days. Eight days. Okay. So then what happened next? What was the next date that was significant for you? <laughs> so the next day, that was, that was January 7th. So I get a message saying, hey, can you come into the office? That was my supervisors or, and just have a discussion about something irrelevant. I'm like, yeah, okay, no problem. I get in there and there's the supervisor plus the director of HR. Silly me, I didn't even think there was a problem then either. Most <laughs> other people would have just started sweating I guess. I think that's understandable because even on the night, just to refresh, on the night that you went through all of this, you checked with the supervisor beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't imagine why you would think anything was amiss. It was a different supervisor. It was the person who was immediately in charge of the vaccination. But this person was from in the from a departmental level supervisor. And the discussion is, well, we have a, we've come to find out that you took a uh, dose of vaccine off-site and gave it to your family and friends. I, and, I, and I sort of took a step back and I said, no, wait a minute. If you're talking about the one vaccine vial that was left over with the 10 doses for which I found tier 1B candidates and I gave them out, yeah, I did that. But that wasn't anything, that wasn't a hidden issue or a problem issue. I submitted all the necessary paperwork for it and I made sure that they knew about it. Everyone's known about it. He goes, oh, you admit it, so you're fired. That was it. Wow. No follow-up questions after you tried to explain yourself. No. Uh, yeah, at that point, I mean, I'm thinking, oh, come on, guys. This is obviously a misunderstanding. Let me explain. Yeah. But look, those were meant to go to the garbage. There was nobody who was there to receive them once you got to the office, and they were going to get wasted. It doesn't make sense that one would let that go to waste. Are you, are you saying that? Because, and the answer response back was, well, it was not yours to give away. All right, look, let's go back a second and <laughs> try this a few different ways. And I wasn't getting anywhere. And if anything, the director of HR was escalating it further saying, well, you know, because he was clearly uncomfortable. Actually, they both were, to be honest. At the time, the both of them were quite uncomfortable, and I could tell that. Why were they uncomfortable? Because they couldn't give back reasonable arguments to what I was saying as to why I did it. So they said, well, you know, this has gone beyond us now, so it's gone to the county attorney, and they're even looking at 
charges potentially and criminal theft issue. I'm like, are you kidding me? No, no. They're looking at theft. Uh, they've been trying to see how much each vial costs and, and see how much of a amount of theft that this was. And, and this may well cause you to lose your license. And there was one thing they said during that meeting with you that really jumped out to me from the New York Times article, I think because of the implication and also because, I don't know, just from my perspective, I found I found the sentiment rather disgusting, but I will quote it here from the New York Times, quote, the officials maintained that he, meaning you, had violated protocol and should have returned the remaining doses to the office or thrown them away. He also said, this is you speaking, of course, here, that one of the officials startled him by questioning the lack of, quote, equity yeah. among those he had vaccinated. And you said, quote, are you suggesting that there were too many Indian names in that group? And they said, exactly. So can you walk me through that? Yeah, it was. <laughs> so this was one of those those surreal moments among many others. But this is one of those points where the issue came up was the directors and, and higher levels and the elected officials know what you guys are doing. Are you aware? What's the media and how are people going to feel when they find out that you're encouraging us to throw these extra doses away instead of finding people? So he says, well, you know, there is, uh, this is the director of HR, and he says, well, there is the issue of equity in the whole matter. Uh, and I said, equity? What do you mean equity? I mean, I know what equity means in public health terms. Are you suggesting that there were too many Indian names in the group. He looks at me, points a finger, and says, exactly. And that, I believe it or not, you know, I, I've never been one to, and maybe I'm fortunate that I've spent my life in medicine, where the reality is, among physicians, among professionals, there you don't see the type of discrimination or the type of thing that you do in many other industries. And I certainly personally haven't. And I've always felt that that to harp on something that's discrimination or against one race or ethnicity or color or whatever, for the purpose of financial gain or getting a leverage, it's not a nice thing to do for anyone. And so I didn't even think about it until much later when I had this discussion. And it's my brother who's an attorney. And I said, hey, you know, something really weird happened in that conversation. Said, What's that? So I told him the story because, are you kidding me? Seriously, I'm like, yeah. You didn't, and you didn't tell me about it. He says, well, <laughs> it just happened. He says, well, wouldn't be able to really prove it anyway. Well, the funny thing is, this exact thing was repeated when the district attorney's office did the investigation, and it is in plain black and white. He repeated the exact same thing to say all the different ways in which they tried to convince me what I did was a bad thing. And I feel bad for him, to be honest with you, because it's just, you know, clearly he didn't, whatever, but it, it was it was not nice. Yeah. I mean, the implication there is that in the six hour window in which you are driving around town and getting the sick and elderly to your home or driving directly to them in the five and a half, six hour window before the vaccine expires, the vaccine that they are accusing you of having stolen, which is a whole other kettle of fish. But what they're implying there is that what you should have done as you were haphazardly driving around for six hours is also administered the vaccines in a way that reflected the percentages of different ethnic groups in the Houston population. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think it was one of my kids who, who, who made a joke, said, Dad, you realize you should have just made random phone calls and you got enough people <laughs> of every category. Right. Pulled up a phone book and looked at last names. <laughs> yes. Right. Wow. And, and so, you know, I kind of like, well, I'm sorry. I mean, I kind of call people that I know would be up at this time. And maybe, you know, the, the, the Indian people tend to stay up a lot later and tend to answer the phones. But I don't know. I mean, all said and done, it certainly wasn't something by design to be the other way around, obviously. But it's, you know, I just picked who I thought might have people that are eligible that way. No people were eligible. And that's all there was to it. Yeah, I mean, we call the people we know, the people who, you know, it's a, whether it's a medical issue or otherwise, we, we look in our phone book and go from there. Okay, so let's flash forward another couple of weeks from, from January 8th, which was the day of your firing, to January 21st. You were quoted in the Houston Chronicle saying there, there's no way to describe when someone texts you a tweet with your name on it with the words criminal charges filed, end quote. And that kind of takes us to the point where just around the time you were receiving that message from a friend, I believe, was when the news crew arrived at your house, which is how you found out the charges had been filed. Is that correct? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hell of a way to find out. Right. Doorbell rings. My son goes out there, opens the door, and there's a 
bright light. There's two couple of people there. Microphone on face and says, do you know, is Dr. Gokul there? Is, do you know what, uh, if he's available, do you know what happened? And he's completely blindsided by this. He says, no idea what this is about. So he says, excuse me, hang on. And he closes the door and says, dad, there's people at the door. I think they're reporters. You can't imagine when you've spent years. I mean, look, uh, let, let's face it. At, after high school, uh, you go through med school, undergrad med school, four years of residency, you come out and you work hard to keep your reputation intact and you work hard to take care of people with the best ability you have. And then suddenly everything just washes away kind of like a sandcastle in front of your eyes. There's nothing you can do about it and there's nothing, there's nothing to do but watch. And that's what it was. It's the, probably the hardest moment that I've had to relive is thinking about it, talking about it. I don't wish that feeling upon anybody. Yeah, I can only imagine. You finished your residency in 2001, so you'd been practicing medicine for by that point as a licensed medical professional, as a licensed doctor for nearly 20 years at that point. And to see all of that potentially on the line, really on the line in the flash of an eye. And just so the audience knows, like you hadn't been contacted by the prosecutor's office. You hadn't been contacted by police. No one had contacted you up until this point. Is that correct? Absolutely. You know, and I wish they had, because I don't think it would have taken much explaining or putting things together to realize what the real story was, had that happened. Look, this is not my world, the world of the lawyers and, and investigators and stuff. But from what I've learned in the last six months, it's one of the basic things you do is, is you speak with the person who you believe did the wrong thing and say, hey, what is your story? I wish I had an opportunity to tell my story up front because I don't think our lives would have been so damaged and so much resources would have been wasted in terms of public resources pursuing something that didn't make sense. Yeah, public resources, and that's a that's a, a key element. I'm glad you brought that up. Public resources for what amounted to $135, which is what the file was listed as having cost. I think I have that number, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So $15 a dose Yeah, times nine doses or something. That's how they calculated it. And I have to imagine that more than $135 of taxpayers' money was spent over the next five months on your case. But I'd like to read a statement from the district attorney, Kim Ogg. I think I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. I know this might be difficult to hear. I just wanted to read it for the benefit of the audience. And then I want to follow up with what Judge Franklin Bynum had to say about your case. District attorney Ogg said, quote, in a public statement released the day that the news media showed up at your front door, quote, he abused his position to place his friends and family in line in front of people who had gone through the lawful process to be there. What he did was illegal. He'll be held accountable under the law, end quote. But only four days later, county court at law judge Franklin Bynum, who I just mentioned, dismissed the charge out of hand, saying it was irresponsible to even bring the case, which sought to, quote, criminalize a doctor's documented administration of vaccine doses during a public health emergency. And then when also went on to say, quote, in the number of words usually taken to describe an allegation of retail shoplifting, the state attempts for the first time to criminalize a doctor's documented administration of vaccine doses during a public health emergency, end quote. The court emphatically rejects this attempted imposition of the criminal law on the professional decisions of a physician, end quote. I mean, that must have felt amazing news to hear when he released his statement rejecting the charges that had been filed against you. Walk us through the hours after you heard that statement and then what happened next? Um, the first thing I did upon hearing that is there's a sigh of relief and I said, well, I, you know what? I think I'm going to take a nap because I haven't slept in three days. <laughs> well, that nap, when I woke up after three hours, it was over because the next statement that came right afterwards was, well, we're taking this to the grand jury. Just because a judge disagrees doesn't mean that's how it's going to go. That didn't last very long, unfortunately. Do you have any insight now, all these months later, as to why the prosecutor, the district attorney, continued to so doggedly pursue this case, even after the judge made it pretty clear that you were on the right side of the law? The real answer is, I don't know, with any degree of certainty. I have thoughts as to why it might have been. Perhaps it was thought that, look, a doctor stealing vaccine and giving it away at a time when the public is demanding them would cause enough of an outcry and support and make it look like they're doing the right thing, perhaps. 
perhaps that was part of it. It's possible that the DA got information from public health, which was inaccurate, and they kind of just ran with it and found themselves in a corner and then unable to get out of it. Well, think about this. When the first questions were, that was asked was, all right, you keep mentioning having did not follow protocols. Can you please send us the protocols? At which point the answer was, you know, actually, we never got around to writing any protocols. It was just too soon. Protocols did not exist. These protocols, along with a, a waiting list, right. were referred to in the complaint filed against you. And then when you're, well, as you mentioned, when your lawyer requested copies of the protocols and the waiting list, a waiting list hadn't been written yet. Your lawyer found out. Yeah, there was no waiting list. And no protocols. It wasn't about 25 days later when the county judge announced that they were going to develop a waiting list for these type of circumstances. They didn't exist. But to have claimed it and said it so emphatically as though it was how things are done. And then, you know, look, the DA's office wasn't familiar with what protocol didn't, didn't exist. They didn't know whether they did. They just took their word for it. Let's face it, right? So when they were given the information that was inaccurate and they got cornered into a situation, it's entirely possible that's what drove them to, you know, have to defend with their own agency. I'm not sure what exactly drove them to be so persistent right up on, from the beginning to the end to the point where... And, and I think part of it was also that the relationship between the internal relationships between various players was contributory to the politics that came out later and stuff. I mean, there's all sorts of theories and ideas. At the end of the day, the bottom line was that it was a $135 charge for something that was easily explainable and understandable. Uh, obviously, to me, it sounds like it was a mistake that they couldn't back away from. And before we move on to what your life was like in the five months between January 25th and June 30th, when a grand jury declined to press charges, before we get to that, just to refresh the audience's memory here, because I think this is important, because you mentioned the $135, what the district attorney decided to go forward with because I think this isn't just a story about, and this is kind of just my opinion here, this isn't just a story about a medical doctor's name and reputation being dragged through national and international media. This is a story that went beyond the boundaries of the United States to other countries. I know that it even got to friends and family of yours in Pakistan. This isn't just about that. It is ultimately a story about the criminal justice system and what it put you through and what it could potentially put anyone through, even when the cards are on their side as they were on your side. I think it's worth repeating again that there was no waiting list the night that you had these 10 vaccines, which were going to expire in six hours. There were no written protocols. On December 22nd, on a public conference call with a statewide health department that gave guidance, they said the most important thing was getting shots in arms. There were 10 doses out of 500 that were available that day, a significant amount. It's just worth repeating all of those things together to help crystallize how absurd, in my opinion, and I imagine you would agree, this entire situation truly is. Because if there were even a figment of potential wrongdoing anywhere in this story, I certainly have been able to find one because it seems like at every step of the way, you followed either the medical instincts and protocols that you've been trained in medical school and two decades of practicing medicine in an emergency room and the instincts that come with that, and also every protocol that you knew of leading up to December 29th. So I think what's so amazing about this story, and I don't mean amazing in a good way, is how the entire kind of force of the state came down upon you when really it is very difficult to find any kind of justification for them having done so. The reason why so many people send so much support, uh, because it really struck close to home. Uh, as a physician, you can completely see yourself doing a very similar course of action. And if that kind of action leads to such a severe outcome, penalty, and destruction of everything you've worked for, it, it really resonates with a lot of people physicians and otherwise. And I think that's that's why it took on a life of its own. Uh, and I'm very fortunate. I couldn't be more grateful to the people who stepped up for me and people, most, most of them I didn't know. Now, the other part of it was, look, if I, I kind of felt it important to fight this one through. In the big scheme of things, 
look as a misdemeanor or whatever it wouldn't have been such a huge impact in terms of in terms of my ability to make a living in the future right that is a key element that i've neglected to mention you were being charged with a misdemeanor and it is very rare for a misdemeanor to go in front of a grand jury correct with all of that said look it was a misdemeanor if i one of the reasons i had to fight it through is because I felt that if I have the resources, the, all the support and everything else, I almost owe it to, to to carry the flag on this one on behalf of the others. And other than myself personally having to gain from pushing through this, there's something to be said about a greater autonomy that doctors continue to use in difficult, difficult situations that they, these should not be criminalized when they run afoul of one policy or another, even though there was no policy in this case. Well, absolutely. The general public, and I imagine doctors especially, understand the importance of things like medical malpractice laws. You know, we don't want doctors to abuse their power. But I think people also understand why it is so vital that we kind of adhere when it comes to medical professionals to something akin to the Good Samaritan law. You don't want doctors, especially in life and death situations, which ultimately, when you're giving a vaccine, against a virus that has a pretty high mortality rate amongst people in their 80s and 90s, two people in their 80s and 90s, as you did, you don't want doctors in those situations second-guessing whether or not they could potentially lose their license and be charged with a crime because they made a decision to save a life. That's why this case law in particular would have been so toxic. It would not have just affected you. It could have put fear in the minds of doctors who were doing good work. And I think that's why it's important. And actually, that's how it also was stated to a large degree among uh, the Texas Medical Association, the Harris County Medical Society, and other physician groups who released statements saying that this is a not a good thing to have happen if a doctor is going to get taken to court for doing something that would be practicing his profession and using his judgment. Speaking about that support that they publicly gave you, the Texas Medical Association and the Harris County Medical Society, they issued that statement of support. But in the time between January 25th and June 30th, the hospitals where you had admitting privileges told you not to return until your case had been resolved. So what did you do over the next five months? Were you able to work? I know that you did some volunteering. What was the next five months like for you and your family? The hospitals were actually very good. There was a lot of uncertainty there and sure what was going on. There was potential criminal issues going on that needed to be worked out and stuff. And I was quite grateful to both Houston Methodist and Memorial Harmon for understanding and kind of letting me take this breather and getting this stuff worked out. There was an understanding that, look, you know, there we've got to know, we've got to make sure everything is cleared up. Shortly after Judge Bynum's statement, they were okay with me working. And I did resume in a part-time. Part of the reason that I didn't go back full-time at that point was because you work in the ER, you have to be on your A-game. And if you're preoccupied with pretty significant legal issues or, or things that are worrisome, you're never going to be you're the best physician, ER physician to your patients. And that wouldn't have been fair. What I did do was I started to volunteer at a charity clinic that's not too far from here and helping them seeing patients and helping them build their resources and stuff like that. And I still continue to work with them because I kind of found myself really enjoying that part of it. Since then, I've resumed doing more shifts in the emergency department and in these hospitals. And it's still not back to the full scale as it takes a while to get used to doing the night shifts and so on and so forth. But in reality, I kind of have to, this is so fresh, to be honest with you, with this thing having resolved that sort of still processing it. And so is the rest of my family. Yeah, understandable. We're recording this on July 11th. So it's only less than two weeks since the grand jury made their decision, which acquitted you. Yeah. Yeah. How involved were you? I think it was a two days of testimony. Were you, how heavily involved were you in that process yourself? It was three days, actually. It was Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Three days. The grand jury process itself is completely secretive with no opportunity for my representation to be in there or for... I could go in there and speak on my behalf, but that's the extent of what I would do. My attorneys chose not to do it that way, but rather present the grand jury, the jurors with written evidence and floating articles and video and such from interviews I had given previously. It was that which primarily contributed to this, at least I believe that. 
to the outcome. I mean, these things are generally overwhelmingly come out in the favor of the prosecution. I was quite, quite fortunate that it, uh, it came out in my favor. I've looked up some stats about how often grand juries side with the prosecutor and it's you know upwards of 90 plus percent. The fact that you beat this one, so to speak, I mean, it's the just outcome, but there have been instances in the past not related to your case where equally innocent people have sometimes been railroaded in cases like this because the grand jury so often tends to side with the prosecution. Yeah, it's understandable. They're the only ones they really interact with during this process. I only have a couple additional questions here, Hassan. Has your experience had any effect on how you view our criminal justice system kind of writ large? I don't know if you've had any previous experience with our justice system. I doubt it. But if you have, you're free to share. But I was just wondering how this particular experience, has it affected how you view the system at large? When it comes to the criminal justice system, I have had no other meaningful interactions with it on a couple of you know speeding tickets probably be the extent of it. (laughs) Yeah, same here. (laughs) But beyond that, there was a pretty scary event uh, from beginning to the end, especially because you realize that if someone wants to find a way to manipulate the truth or to muddy the waters and someone's for someone not to be able to see what's going on, etc. It's so easy to do that. And the only way out of it, even if you're in the right, is to expend very large amount of your own personal resources defending yourself at the end of the day only to to say oh sorry okay well it was wrong or thrown out and stuff and you're still you're down a massive amount of funds that you know your your savings and etc etc in all of this i was fortunate look i'm a physician and i've been fortunate enough to be able to spend that resource and have a way to recover it eventually. Let's face it, not everybody has that opportunity. And it's that which is sad. I think that's a key element. I'm glad you brought it up. It's instructive, right? I mean, for every person like yourself, reading that statement, which I read a little bit earlier, which is just a portion of what the district attorney said about you and your case back in January, reading that, And now knowing how everything shook out for you and and the fact that it went your way, but reading her statement about you, which is just a horrendous accusation said with such force, it just had to have been a terrifying event. But what you said is instrumental here, which is that the vast majority of people who end up on this side of the criminal justice system who are innocent do not have necessarily the resources with which to fight a wrongful charge. And even when someone ends up on the right side of things, right? Even when the charges are dropped, even when someone is acquitted of those charges, the financial damage remains. And even if you can earn it back as a physician, and that's great, it was not free. That's important. Yeah. And and let's not forget the non-financial issues with which you're left behind at the end of the day. Oh, yes. This was not an easy thing for my family, for my wife, kids, my parents. For my friends who who were incredibly supportive, I couldn't believe this thing was happening. But my own kids, you know, I mean, we, you could see you could see they were different. They weren't the same. They you could see a sense of worry come over them. They don't they didn't display the innocence and the carefree nature that they did before this event occurred. And that was incredibly painful to watch. I know they were worried. I know they were trying to do all they could to be supportive. Uh, my wife's condition got worse because she had trouble sleeping. She couldn't sleep through all of this. How do you financially justify or say, well, this is worth it? Or how do you put it in monetary terms, these type of damages? And I'm not saying this for the purpose that, you know, I have any intention to do anything or this or that, whatever, because that's always the next question. But the reality is the pain is real. It's very real. I don't have any personal experience going through that. So all I can do is imagine what that was like for you and your family and your children. I'm very close with my parents, with my mom and dad, and with my sister as well. I've seen my parents go through some tough times. The Great Recession wasn't too long ago. And it's difficult to watch your parents go through something hard. Man, I was in my 20s when all that happened. They were uh, small business owners. And it's difficult to watch the people you care about, the people you see as your heroes go through something, for lack of a better word, often traumatizing, right? So I can only imagine how hard that was on on your still pretty young children. So 
I say that while also saying that I'm, I'm very glad that it went your way, but I think it's important and I'm glad that you mentioned it, that beyond the financial toll, the emotional and mental toll on your family was clearly very real. It's time to heal. What's next for you, Hassan? What, what are your plans for the rest of the year, either professionally, personally? What's the silver lining for the rest of the year, I guess, for you and your family? I get to take solid naps without waking up in between that, for sure. I enjoy that. I think somewhere in between Disney World has got to be there. But in the big scheme of things, I think right now the biggest thing is just really stepping back with the family, taking a breather, and just kind of enjoying the moment that we're no longer have to look over our shoulders constantly. We're not being pursued by anyone with a lot of power and a lot of political resources. And that feels feels good. As far as going forward, I like emergency medicine very much. But emergency medicine does take a toll on you as you get older. Uh, the night shifts are difficult. In a perfect world, I'd like to transition into something that allows me to have a better work-life balance. And I thought I had that with my previous position. But those are my very unrefined thoughts about where I go from here. Well, like you said earlier, I mean, this is all really fresh, but I've no doubt, you know, granted, we don't know each other beyond this one hour plus conversation, but I feel pretty confident in believing that you'll land somewhere great eventually. Before I get to the last question, Hassan, that I ask every guest on the podcast, is there anything else that you wanted to say or discuss before we wrap up our chat? The best part about this, you know, somebody asked me the other day, would you do this again? Initially, I thought, well, of course not, but go through this again, this whole process. The reality is I have come across much more goodness than I have badness. You know, a couple of people who didn't agree with how I did things versus the thousands, and I mean thousands of people who reached out to me, has truly restored my own hope and humanity uh, in a way that I would never have seen. I mentioned in the beginning, I, there was this letter from someplace in Virginia with a, without a return address that says to my lawyer, Mr. Doyle, please apply these $7, which I could afford to Dr. Goko's legal fund. Or And he says, yeah, I have another $10 check to give you. And these are people that are not of my cultural, ethnic origin. They don't live in geographically the same area I do. They're uh, religiously, you know, we're not the same. And yet, it's the common bond that brought so many people together and left me, despite the the hard times that will wane away easily. And I'll forget about those, but I won't forget about what, how these people made me feel and helped me pull through. And I'm ever so grateful. I wish I could thank all of them. I never will, but it's something that I can't ever forget. I'm so glad you shared that because at the risk of sounding cheesy, at the national level, a lot of our discourse around what is happening or what has happened in the country, it can all seem so negative, right? As if everyone in America is at each other's throats all the time. So it's honestly just selfishly for me. It's great to hear stories like yours and the generosity of individuals who, like you said, don't share your background, even your religious beliefs, all kinds of things, heritage, who are sending $7 via the post to help your legal cause. I don't know. That's I'm not a super sentimental guy, but that is really heartwarming. And, and I'm really glad you shared that story. Uh, on a last note on that piece, you know, we, we get hung up on our differences, even though we have so many more similarities between, you know, a liberal versus conservative and this and that. But I'll tell you, what I realized was that after you weed through all of those things, that which is human is the same in both because I got reached out from both sides about the same. And that was, it was amazing. That right there, Hassan, is, is one of the main reasons I started this podcast, because I think you're absolutely right. There are so many more things that connect us than divide us, and I couldn't agree with you more. I want to respect your time, and I appreciate you spending the time with us today, but I would love to ask you the last question that I ask everyone who comes on. As individuals, we are limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of everyone else, every other group of people all the time. It's just impossible. There's not enough hours in the day. So is there someone, Hassan, or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Well, look, it's right now, it's, I feel truly concerned, worried, and I would love to 
have an opportunity to have further conversations with those who feel fearful of the vaccination. We're in Texas. Texas has a relatively low immunization rate of the COVID vaccines compared to many of the other places. And it's so easy for, and it happens too much for people with education or, or certain political leanings to vilify the other side. It's time to actually say, hey, listen, guys, there's reasons why people believe what they do. They have fears. They have things that we're fortunate. We don't have those types of fears and stuff. And, and it is very important for us to make bridges through and try and be on the same page rather than just make someone feel down or look down on them for having made certain choices in their lives. And that's really all. Wonderfully said. And thank you again for taking the time. And you know, I wish the best to you and your family as you recover from what has been a, a pretty tumultuous first half of your year. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the lives that you help. And thank you again for coming on the show. It means a lot to me. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. 